Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to Series 2, Episode 18 of Out with Susie Ruffle. Here we are, the final episode of the series and what an episode it is. We have the marvellous Gok Wan on the show today. I am so excited for you to hear this one. It was recorded a couple of months ago, but I've saved it for the series finale. Firstly, thank you so, so much to people that got in touch after Rosie's episode last week, but... I want to thank all of you that have listened to this series, who've written in, who have tweeted, who's Instagrammed about the show. I've appreciated it so, so much. Creating this little podcast during lockdown one uh, was something that I hoped people would enjoy and I hoped that um, that people would get a kick out of it. And I thought it would be really exciting for me to chat to people and interview people. And I've always been a chatter, as you, if you're listening, know this. And I've been sort of blown away by how successful these two little series that we've created this year has been. It's been, we've been podcast of the week in The Guardian, The Times and The Eye Paper. We're nominated for a Pod Bible Award. Uh, we're constantly getting feedback from both the UK and abroad from people that are really, really enjoying it. And I'm just delighted that this podcast that I record, as you well know, in this little cupboard office in my flat is meaning so much to so many people. Um, And I want you to know it means an awful lot to me as well. Doing this podcast has certainly made what has been quite a tough year, um, 2020, you know, being a stand-up, all of my work completely stopped, all of the satisfaction and joy I get from being on stage performing just all went away, you know, in what felt like a matter of minutes and it came back here and there and then there were a couple of gigs and a couple of Zoom gigs and then it all went away again. And having this podcast and chatting to these incredible people and knowing that people out there are enjoying it has has really been the highlight or one of the highlights of my 2020 so thank you so much for being part of that I also need to thank the incredible guests that we've had this series we've had Alan Carr, Emily K, May Martin, Travis Alabanza, Steph McGovern, Dennis O'Hare, Laura Checkley, the Reverend Richard Coles, Juno Dawson, Raven Smith, Rita Loy, Amro Alcaddy, Jessica Foster Q, Stephen Bailey, Jem Brister, Lucy Spraggan, Rosie Jones and today we have Gokwan. Before we begin, as always, I will share some listener uh, emails. Okay, let's start here. Thanks from Down Under. Oh, I just said we had listeners from all over the world and that wasn't planned, but here we are. A message from Down Under. Dear Susie, I wanted to say it's been an absolute joy finding your podcast this year. 
I recently spent two years overseas, which were some of the best and most liberating years of my life. I felt like I could escape the self-hatred and internalised homophobia that I've struggled with so much growing up in Australia. And I found some amazing LGBTQIA plus friends. I came home in March to visit and got stuck here. I'm finding it really difficult being home. It's like I've slipped back into the closeted, lonely version of myself. I think one of the trickiest things is while my family is supportive and I'm incredibly lucky and grateful for that, I feel like they can't understand the inner turmoil that it's caused me and how much pain. I think no matter where you grow up, learning to untangle the shame you absorb as an LGBTQ plus kid is so easily dismissed these days. So I found it so helpful to hear you and Laura Checkley talk about this in her episode. Your podcast has reassured me I'm not alone in my struggle and has given me a slice of hope that one day I'll find my people again. Sorry if this email sounds like a whinge, it doesn't, but I wanted to convey how important finding your podcast has been to me. Thanks so much, Susie. Cheers, Nick. Well, Nick, I am sure that one day you will find your people again. I hope that your lockdown in Australia is okay. I mean, I know that there's been lots of different types of lockdowns all across Australia, um, and I hope wherever you are, you're sort of doing okay, and I hope that you have a nice Christmas um, and that you find your people very soon. Hello Susie, I've never done anything like this before but I felt I needed to write to you and thank you and all of your amazing guests for the stories that you share on your podcast. I'm a 27 year old cis female and I came out as bisexual earlier this year, feeling pretty late to the party. Growing up I always knew I was attracted to girls, I just never addressed my feelings and thought it would be easier to pretend that that part of me didn't exist, since I liked boys too, so what did it matter if I only dated them? What I didn't realise was the years of hiding that part of me would lead to a deep shame and unhappiness. I wouldn't even watch queer films in case someone saw it on my recently watched list. Ridiculous, I know. Thankfully, after gaining the confidence to finally be myself, it's like someone flicked a switch and I've never been more loud and proud and kicked myself for not coming out sooner. Most of my friends and family have been incredibly supportive and although my religious grandparents struggled at first, I know that they still love me. Coming out during a global pandemic hasn't been ideal without pride or bars open to meet other people in the community. Not like there's a gay bar in this small town. But because of this, online queer content like your podcast has been so important. And I just wanted to thank you for helping listeners like me to feel part of the community and not so alone. Wishing you a lovely Christmas, Tammy. And Tammy said that she's happy to share. Um, Tammy, thank you so much for saying that. I'm so delighted that the podcast has made you feel part of the community because of course you are. And, you know, I feel the same. I usually love going to Pride and love all that celebration stuff that we get to do every year. And obviously this year we've not been able to do it. But, you know, hopefully in 2021, with vaccines coming out and hopefully the world getting a lot healthier, we are all going to be able to see each other again and all be able to celebrate and celebrate the brilliant community. And that includes our allies. I know we have lots and lots of allies listening. You are very, very welcome to be part of that as well. Um, before I get to the wonderful uh, chat with Gok, um, I want to let you know that we will have another series of the podcast. We're going to continue making it. And um, for that, I really need to thank everyone at Keep It Light, um, who are the production company that make the podcast and they make it really, really easy for me and they make it sound so good and so slick. And so I really appreciate them. Um, because I know that this podcast isn't one of the ones that brings in the big money, but we think it's very, very important to make. So thank you to the guys that keep it light for that. I'm excited to uh, begin recording in January some of the newer episodes, and I'm hoping that the next series will be out around February. 
thank you again for listening if you want to get in touch please do the email will be open in and out of series so please get in touch if you feel like it the email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com uh, if you celebrate Christmas I hope you have a gorgeous Christmas if you don't celebrate Christmas I hope that you have a nice little restful period where you get some you time I also know just a quick one I also know that a lot of people that listen to the show are NHS workers um, or frontline workers and I think it's really important that this Christmas I say a massive thank you to you guys for the incredible work that you've been doing okay that's enough from me let's go to the brilliant chat that I had with Gok One. Hello listener, I am so excited for today's guest. He was right at the top of my wish list when I first started this podcast. I am sure that Gokwan doesn't really need an introduction to you, but I am going to give you one anyway. An acclaimed fashion stylist, presenter, cook, writer and DJ, he burst onto our screens more than a decade ago with the brilliant How to Look Good Naked and inspired women across the country to love their bodies and embrace themselves. It is still my Auntie Jackie's favourite TV show ever. You'll also know him from Gok's Fashion Fix, Fern and Gok Off the Rails This Morning, and Say Yes to the Dress, amongst others. It's Gok's warmth, enthusiasm, and charisma that made us all fall in love with him. Even the Queen likes him. He was awarded an MBE earlier this year for services to fashion and social awareness. And he is easily the most fashionable person I have ever met. Welcome to the show, Gok. Susie, do you know what? Out of all of that incredible introduction, the fact that you're so well-dressed and really <laughs> fashionable. Wow. You know what? Well, Get the MBE. Susie, <laughs> you called me fashionable. <laughs> well, that's great. That means the next time I need a stylist, I can just ring you. Brilliant. I'm... I'm... <laughs> How are you doing, Gok? I've got to say before we begin, um, I am loving Isolation Nation. Thank you. You're really kind. I mean, I'm doing all right, actually. When I when the lockdown first happened, it was awful. I hated it. But I'm really rubbish with my own company. Like, I can't spend more than three minutes on my own. I even have to sometimes poo with the door open because I can't bear the thought of being on my own. And so when lockdown happened, it was a little bit like I'd been sentenced to go into prison. That's what it felt like, genuinely. And and I was thinking, how am I going to get out of this situation? But then all of a sudden, I, I worked out that I just needed to, a few devices in my life, like cooking, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also I started doing Isolation Nation. So a lot of people don't realise, but I've been DJing for years and years and years, professionally in clubs and festivals and stuff, and decided that I was going to take it online. And I think last weekend over two sessions we had over a million whatever that means impressions uh, or reach or whatever that is I mean it's probably three people isn't it but anyway <laughs> no. it, it, it's been remarkable that's amazing thank you, thank you. but what's been what's been lovely about it is that, that we've managed to raise money I raised 10 grand last night for Stonewall yeah I saw seven grand for the NHS the other week I've been selling isolation nation hoodies like literally at the back of a van I love it money for the Black Lives Matter campaign so in fact it's not just DJing and giving me something to do um it's also we've been raising cash so I'm very proud of it I have to say you should be there have been several nights that uh my girlfriend and I have put it on in the background of the house being like oh let's let's pop on got for a bit while we're like making tea and having dinner and just have it on in the background having a few drinks it's great what's really funny about that is that I, I mean I treat it like I'm performing so I can mm. kitchen up and yep. put on an outfit decide how I'm feeling that day and I literally dance solidly so much so that this morning I woke up got out of bed and collapsed because my <laughs> ankle had gone from dancing for four hours yesterday this is no word of a lie and but then I've started to work out now and it's taken three months 
but everybody else is sat down at home having dinner. I'm the only wanker jumping around my kitchen like I've done 400 grams of speed. <laughs> do you have a drink while you do it? Oh, hammered, hammered. <laughs> I've got what's become a really famous uh, fish jug, which is called a double jug from Stoke-on-Chent, let me tell you. Right. And it makes a noise when you pour your drink. And I started using that at the beginning. And so if I do a set now where it isn't filled with vodka, you see the comments going up with people going, where's the fucking fish? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so I, I get hammered all the way through, which is just an excuse to get drunk, really, because I do like drinking, you know. Great. I mean, also it gives us lot a chance to have a look at your kitchen which I really enjoyed I was like oh that's nice I like what he's done there that's very nice <laughs> you can have a really good nose in Gok's house without without having to break him when he's not there so that's great as well it's so odd because like you know I, I never ever regard myself as a celebrity I hate that word I really mm. hate the word celebrity and and so for me it feels really okay so I'm from a northern council estate I'm also mixed race right so my entire upbringing was based on people coming over and regardless of who you were or what you've done you might have murdered someone you still come in for dinner and so it's just like basically this is the world I'm, I'm from and so for me it feels really normal to invite people into my home I've got no problem with it but a lot of my friends are like well, you're not you're not a bit funny about it like people can see where you live and I'm like why just because I'm on the television it's because people I do a job on the television doesn't mean that I've got anything to, you know to hide or anything it's a bit of an odd concept so for me I don't mind people having a nose around the kitchen and having a look at what I've got and I might even do my very own through the keyhole on one of the oh big- please do <laughs> I want to see your wardrobe I want to see how organized it is it's really organized yeah I, I can imagine that yeah, I, I like organisation. I like things in a certain route. And so at the moment, because I've, I've redone it during lockdown, and at the moment it's in colour order, genre order, and what time of day order. Or not. I have a what time of day department. So I kind of know if this is going to be loungewear. <laughs> okay, I kind of hate myself for saying this, but I know if it's going to be loungewear or if I know it's going to be nipping to the shops because we can now. And so I've got time of day departments. I love it. Can I ask you another question? Because I heard on an interview that you did that you said that you keep a spreadsheet of what you've worn to like events and stuff. Do. do you still do that? Yeah, I keep a spreadsheet <laughs> of all the outfits I've ever worn. Okay, so, so this, there's a couple of reasons why I do this. Number one is because I love a spreadsheet. I mean, sure. I mean, forget foreplay. Just let me over <laughs> it. And so I love a spreadsheet. Um, number two, it saves me a massive amount of time when, you know, you get invited to something, you think, oh, what am I going to wear? But I'm filming all day or I'm doing this all day or mm-hmm. whatever. So it does all of that. But also as well, because I like everybody else, and um, I think people think that I've got the key to body confidence and the key to personal self-esteem happiness, but I just don't. I'm like everybody else. And so there are certain outfits that I've worn that I know I felt good in. And so for me, it makes perfect sense to log that, to know, actually, it's like, you know, turning around and saying, well, I, I love a roast dinner, so let's have a roast dinner. And so for me, my wardrobe's a little bit like that. So if I log everything, and I know I'm having a bit of a particularly shitty day with how I feel about myself, or like everybody else does mm-hmm. then I know that I can just call on the spreadsheet and turn around and say well actually you felt great in that in that outfit so we'll just wear that one and it works that's pretty well I sort of do that with clothes for stage there's yeah. certain shirts that I have great gigs in or certain suits that I'm like I felt I felt great that day yeah and so yeah no I get that but I don't I don't keep it in a spreadsheet but maybe I should can I give you a little tip Susan please do free fashion tips now oh this is great another thing i do without fail regardless of how hammered i am at the weekend 
on a Sunday, I will always set up my outfits for the week. So I'll go through my diary and work out, well, you've got, you know, that meeting, you're filming there, you're doing this, you're seeing friends, whatever. And I work out all my outfits and I rack them all up in a long line down my wardrobes and I photograph them. And then they all get put into my phone. So I will know on Wednesday evening when I'm doing that, what I'm wearing on the Sunday. I love that. Are you turned on? I loved it. I am a little bit, yeah. <laughs> Mainly because because I dress quite androgynously. I feel like I could really go into your wardrobe and have a great time. I feel like, yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take that as well. That's great. Well, I dress really androgyn- androgynously as well. So, I mean, we could just share. We'd yeah, great- okay, that's it. Okay, we- the podcast is over. I'm coming around. That's it. <laughs> I'm actually, Susie. I've got to say, and I, you know, I, I obviously follow you on social media. I've met you several times. I've even seen you perform. And I do love your style. I love the way that you somehow find humor in what you're wearing but it's never funnier than what's coming out of your mouth oh that is that's one of my favorite compliments I've ever had thank you for that are you blushing a little bit yeah I am I've turned you on and I've made you blush oh my god wait this can't be a podcast talking about being gay because by the end of it I'm going to be in gay I'm going to be betrothed to got one I mean (laughs) what a turnout for the books Now, you spoke about growing up on a council estate. You grew up in Leicester, is that right? That's right, Leicester. Now, your dad owns a restaurant, doesn't he? He did. He did. Yeah, multiple restaurants and takeaways, never more than one at a time. So there Mm -hmm. weren't, like, huge empires. But we all all brought up in catering, basically, so Chinese restaurants and then takeaways. And finally, um, the last business they had before they retired a few years ago was a fish and chip shop. Um, so yeah, so always growing up around food, but around work and the business and the family and stuff like that. It was a, a great upbringing, but tough. It was a really tough upbringing. Because you... Lots of things. Being gay was really tough. Um, being mixed race was very tough. And being mixed race Asian was really tough because we were the only Asian family on our estate, pretty much. Right. And in your school as well, were you some of the only Asian children there? Yeah, I th- yes. I mean, that I remember. I mean, mm-hmm. it's hazy it's one of those things you know I, I really hated my childhood um so I shouldn't really say that I didn't hate all of my childhood I loved my time with my family I loved growing up in a business I was a really happy kid until about 10 or 11 and then it all kind of the shit hit the family it all got a bit miserable and so I've kind of blocked out a lot of the stuff and a lot of people say go and have therapy rediscover I'm like why would you want to live that shit again no thanks <laughs> it's dealt it. with and it's in the past yeah, I didn't enjoy it the first time around I'm not going in for a second helping and so so I, so I think that we pretty much were the only Asian family that I remember anyway. Um, and so, yes, so for lots of, lots of different reasons, it was just quite a tough place to be. You know, my parents went through a lot of racism when they got together because of my dad being Chinese, mum being English. And I think we might have inherited some of that a little bit because I remember hearing about it and my mum speaking about it when we were very young. So it makes you very aware of that kind of stuff. And then, you know, and I, I had a, a really, really tough time coming out because I'm naturally quite camp. I'm mm. naturally quite flamboyant. And also I was 21 stone. So you can imagine I was like a smorgasbord for the bullies. It came in from every direction. They just nibbled on me throughout the day. And I heard you say as well that you were, you sort of became flamboyant. Was that to deal with bullies so that you got yeah. there first? I had, a, I had a kind of real epiphany very uh, very early on is that I, the only place that I felt comfortable at school because I'm not that clever. Um, I, know I, th- I, 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 think that's, I think that's not true. I think that you're, that's the honest you're truth. similar to me. You're not academic. 
But you've got to be clever. I'm a great salesman. I'm re- I could sell anything. That's that's the thing. But how would someone that's not clever be able to like create isolation nation, do all these things, raise all this money? You're just clever in a different way. It's all luck. The whole thing <laughs> is luck. No, what I mean is I'm not clever, as in I am. That, that, okay, that's a lie. I'm being massively self-deprecating because it's easy. But I, um, my sister's really academic, as in mm-hmm. the brightest person I know. Um, I, I'm not into sports. And so kind of, you know, when you're, you know, back in those days as well in the 80s, it was either, you know, you're either clever or you did sports. You kind of didn't do anything else. It was that type of thing. But I, I, found, I found a really warm, safe place in the drama studio. And at mm-hmm. uh, a very, very young age, I kind of worked out that I could stand on stage. I found it really difficult to be in a classroom. I found it really difficult to be in the school corridors or in the playground. But I found it very easy to be on stage. Um, it didn't scare me. And in fact, I enjoyed the rush of, of being anybody other than me and I, and I and I worked that out very very young and so I was in the I was in um, I took drama as an option and at the same time I also um, asked to be in the school pantomime which was the irony is, is I do pantomime for a living yeah. <laughs> I asked to be in the school pantomime and I got cast as um, you know typically typecast as um, not as Prince Charming I know you're shocked as uh, Dandini, the camp sidekick. And I literally fell in love with Dandini. I've, I've got a picture of it, actually. I'll send it to you, Susie. I'll, I'll text it to you. Um, I've got a picture of me standing on stage as Dandini. And I remember borrowing a girl's trousers, these wide leg black palazzo pants with massive polka dots on. And I had this huge oversized shirt and I had a, a polka dot cravat wrapped around my neck and I wore blusher and lipstick and eyeshadow and my hair was in a kiss curl. And Dandini was just the most incredible person I've ever met in my entire life because he was allowed to be flamboyant and that's what got him love and attention and he was allowed to be funny and that's what got him love and attention and for the first time ever I I suppose Dandini became my confidant and my friend because I then wasn't afraid of being gay just whilst I was Dandini which lasted only for three nights believe it or not and it wasn't until much later on that I I worked all this stuff out but he was the most most incredible person and he allowed me to be flamboyant and in fact the more flamboyant I was the more laughter and the more cheer and the more joy in the audience faces and it was it was a real opening of my sexuality and me coming out was the first thing that happened to me really. And do you think that because I didn't have a very nice time at school either I mean it wasn't awful but I I just didn't enjoy it and I was I was just uh, not comfortable in my own skin and constantly trying to be someone else and I and I did lots and lots of drama as well and I felt like I don't know if you'll agree with this. When you're on stage, you sort of have control of it. Yeah. Because everyone's looking at you and you're going, well, I've got the control now. You can't say anything about me. Yeah. Because I'm the one that's got a mic on. And I think it's even the same now with me doing stand-up. I'll say everything that they that someone could think to say about me before they've had a chance to say it. Yeah. And then I'm in control. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. And I think that absolutely you, that, that does translate into your adult life. You know, when, when I'm working now, even you know, if, if I'm dressing somebody on camera, I'm still very much in control. And for me, it was less about getting in there first and being self-deprecating. It was more about if you come at me right now. So when I, when I was at school, so things like, you know, being tripped up, being poked, having names for it, you know, this stuff happened daily. It was, a, you know, a barrel. Mm. It, was like, it was like warfare, basically, in the, in the playground. And when that stuff kind of happens, the only defence you've got is either to walk away from that 
or stand up for yourself. Now, I didn't know what standing up for myself meant because I didn't understand my sexuality. I wasn't out by then. I was still coming mm-hmm. to terms. I, didn't, I, hadn't, I hadn't been with anybody. I didn't know really what I was doing. My, so I couldn't defend it and I couldn't stand up for it because I didn't understand it. But when I was on stage... These people weren't allowed to weren't allowed to do that because if I was, you know, Dandini, for instance, then Dandini would have a line, and Dandini would be able to stop it there and then because that person is sat there watching you. Their role in this performance is to be your audience. Do you see what I mean? And yeah, so absolutely. That's what gave me full control, but it only lasted for three for three nights. And so then afterwards, I had to then go back to my normal world. And I hadn't worked any of this. Stuff. I wasn't bright enough to work out that what was, that's what was happening. But I was definitely a different person after falling in love with Dandini, without question, because I knew that out there, there were real life Dandinis. There were real people that were willing to accept me and allow me to be me and allow my flamboyance and my big personality to be a plus and not necessarily be something that stopped me from being like everybody else. You're something to be celebrated. Susie, it's very deep. I thought we were going to talk about fish. Or no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We've spoken about your fish jug, and now we're getting right into it. Going up. Stop this. So, what did your did your mum and dad know that you were having a tough time at school? No, I kept it all from them. They were having a really tough time with their business. By which time we had moved out of our council house and we'd gone to live above a restaurant. And mm-hmm. the restaurant, you know, it was the eighties and there was the, the recession and it was really, really tough for business. And I watched my dad, you know, really struggle and go from a beautifully flamboyant and charismatic restaurant owner to somebody that was really afraid of losing his business. And so I just felt that I couldn't put any more on them because they were struggling so much. And so I, I became very isolated, very isolation nation on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I was still, a majority of it was to do with my sexuality. Um, even though being fat was a problem, I had the tools and the language and the comedy to beat that away. That was fine. Um, mm-hmm. Being mixed race was kind of all right because, you know, I kind of dealt with that and we didn't really get too much pressure because of our race. Um, but the gay stuff was tough because I didn't know anybody gay and I didn't know what it, I didn't know the language around it. And I, to be honest with you, at that point, I had not confirmed it physically. So it might have been just a fantasy in my brain. I had no idea at all. And so it was the gay stuff that was tough. And I couldn't talk to mum and dad about it because they're not gay. And my brother, yeah. they're not gay. So who the hell do you, you talk to people that are like-minded that are going through the same thing? And, you know, we didn't have the internet back then and we didn't have all that stuff. So I remember creeping into this true story. We had a pub <laughs> in Leicester called The Pineapple and it was opposite the bus station, um, slightly out of town, almost like a viaduct, I suppose. And it was, and I'd heard about this gay pub. And how old are you at this point? Oh my God, how old was I? Probably 14-ish. Okay, so quite young, okay. But I kind of knew I was gay by then. By then, yeah. fantasy had set in. Um, Matt Goss was the lead of, in my in my porn in my head. Uh, and occasionally Luke, depending on what mood I was in. Um, <laughs> and I remember creeping into the pub. And you know, back in those days, all gay pubs, there was no sign saying, this is a gay pub. You know, it was kind of blacked out windows. And, you know, it was supposed to look like a traditional pub, but it was all kind of blacked out. It was a bit weird. And then, but there was always a door open them to get in and they'd always put the free magazines out and flyers and stuff and I remember going in there and nicking one of the free mags and just having this magazine and thinking oh my god what happens behind those closed doors this is amazing this is like Club Tropicana you know where everyone's going to be this beautiful and you know like little did I know later on many years later I go into the pineapple nothing like the fucking magazine <laughs> <laughs> down 
nothing like it. But that was kind of, you know, and so that's, but that's what you did back then, I, I guess, when you don't have yeah. internet and you don't have, you know, your mobile phone, you can search for stuff, which makes me sound prehistoric now. But of course, you know, we didn't have any of those resources. The resources were magazines in shops or wherever you would find it. And in my case, it was the Pineapple Pub in Leicester. And so that was probably my slight entree into, into the gay scene very, very slightly. But I didn't come out until much later, actually. So you moved to London after school, is that right, to go to Central? Yes, I did. But then I had kind of, I had like a big, I had a big moment. So I, I left school really early, so at 15 years old, I got booted out for being a terrorist. Oh, really? Yeah. That surprises me, for being a tearaway. I mean... Well, no, awful, awful. See, you kind of had two ways, well, in my mind, I guess. You know, this is all this is all said with hindsight, and I think hindsight mm. is massively incorrect, um, because you just kind of remember the glossy, beautiful, flowery moments, but... And you remember everything like it's a story, like it was all leading to this, but some things are just shit. You know, people say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and you think, yeah, but people say, when people say, oh, it's character building, you think, oh, I feel like my character's built. Do I have to keep going? into the school so I, I kind of I had two ways to go the bullying got pretty horrific at school but I had two ways to go I could either take the bullying every single day or I could become the aggressor I could become not necessarily the bully because I'd never pick on another person even back then I mean it's kind of my biggest hate is bullies I hate them more mm. than anything else um but I I guess that I was a little bit like an emotional Robin Hood I was kind of looking after everybody else. It was a bit like that. And so what I, what, I, what happened was my, my grades started to fall very quickly and I started to get into trouble because I'd worked out that if you're in a room of people, your peers and your community, now if you do something which you're not supposed to do, it makes people laugh. Mm-hmm. do stuff that's slightly controversial it makes people laugh and so I remember back then it was things like Victoria Wood and Judy Walters yes. and Girls on Top French and Saunders and I remember watching these programs and picking up these one-liners and like being desperate to get to school so I could drop these one-liners um, and I remember this I remember doing it and almost collecting cataloging this humor inside my head and I, so I got into loads of trouble because I was as gobby and loud and mischievous. And, and the more naughty I was, the more people laughed. And it made me feel liked. It made me feel loved. It made me forget about the bullies. And the bullies couldn't come near me when they were laughing because all of yes. them, they were, I was on side with them. And even though they never liked me, I was just became this clown, um, you know, without the makeup and without the stupid hat and the hair. But I was still this clown. And the clowning around got me into a lot of trouble. So I got booted out of school and put onto an extended work experience, which was basically expelled. But to save the right. I'm sure to save the paperwork, I started working for my dad's restaurant. And I then got into a really terrible crowd and kind of, you know, did all the stuff that I shouldn't have done and started raving and going to illegal all night warehouse raves and, you know, doing all that kind of thing. But it was an mm-hmm. incredible experience in my life, which is probably where the DJing comes from now is that I found house music for me was a real saviour because all of a sudden it didn't matter I was gay, even though I hadn't come out. It didn't matter that yes. I was fat. It didn't matter that I was mixed race. I was just in a room full of people that were there to listen to the music and just joining in their, their general euphoria together. And I felt completely, for the first time in my life, like I belonged to something and I belonged to the house music movement. And so it's always been very, very dear to me, very special to me. Um, but then very quickly I knew that I had to get out of that scene. I couldn't spend the rest of my life you know doing the, you know, the shoplifting and doing all that stuff and so I went to college to go and do performing arts 
um, because I remembered Dandini. And I remember having this moment of standing in, in Leicester Town Centre in my um, Le Click tracksuit, my um, Travel Fox trainers. And I remember thinking, you've got to do something about this shit. You have got to do something. And I was really young. I was like 16, 17. And so I walked down to the local college and I knocked on the drama studio door expecting the drama studio to feel exactly the same as the drama studio at school and of course it wasn't it was a completely different space and there was two women there a woman called Dean and a woman called Liz and at the time they were together a couple but they ran the performing arts course and I stood there and I just broke down in tears and I said just help me I don't know what to do with my life and I'm still good friends with Dean now oh wow and and just aced it for three years there aced it aced it aced it which is where I came out actually at college there do you want to hear the coming out? I mean, if you want to, yeah. Where was that? So you were at college, you're doing performing arts. Probably about a year in now. And I Are you still raving and misbehaving? No, I'd miss that. So I'd walked away from the ravings. I'd right, okay. Actually, I couldn't do both. I couldn't be at my raves at the weekend. And I was good at this skill. I was good at being in the drama studio. I was good at arts management. I kind of understood it. I was even mm-hmm. quite good at dancing believe it or not and I can believe it well you know it's larger than life character and so and I was I was kind of doing really well for the first time in my life I felt like I had a purpose and then um take that were around and I remember we sat in the school refectory and I'd ordered my triple sausage sandwich for my breakfast that I had every single day Susie and I ordered this and the the people people on my course were sat there and somebody started talking someone said oh have you seen him his name's Gary he's the hottest and somebody else said no it's Howard another person said it's Jason and I literally blurted out it's Mark Mark the fittest Mark is the hottest (laughs) that's how I came out was like, through take that. Thanks very much, take that. And they kind of all just looked at me as if to say, we knew, it's fine. Yeah. And that was, it was the most underwhelming coming out experience anybody could experience. But it felt like it was such a relief that all of a sudden people knew. But I didn't tell my family until many years after. So did you then go to the pineapple, do you think? Was it then that you were like, okay, yeah. well, I've done it? Yeah. So then in my third year, so it was, it was, it was, two, it was two courses that lasted three years. And then towards, I guess, towards the end of the third year, um, so end of the second year, I started to then hit the gay scene in Leicester. I'd found my confidence and mm-hmm. kind of told, you know, the people that needed to know my life, none of which were my family, by the way. Not your siblings either, just... No, I told myself first, but a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, we started hitting the gay scene and it was it was remarkable. We had a, an incredible club in Leicester called Street Life. I remember standing on a podium and I, by which time I'd become even more flamboyant. And I would, do, I, I remember one outfit that I wore was a silver sarong skirt with <laughs> massive like buffalo boots like you know, spice yeah I remember buffalo boots I had a white shirt on and a red and white check jacket I mean I'm still t- I'm still 21 stone you'd imagine there was a lot of fabric a lot of body to cover and uh, a red and white check um, suit and then I had a, this huge enormous almost dinner plate size um sunflower attached to the jacket I mean I, I'm again like, quite clownish but I enjoyed you know the attention I enjoyed you know being flamboyant and out there which is probably where the fashion comes from now yeah I was gonna say did you were you into fashion then were you into what you were wearing or did that come later I guess I mean no not really I mean I I, I didn't I mean, that's a whole different story, honestly, Susie. There's so many stories. A whole different story how I got into fashion. Probably not. Probably not into fashion then. I just knew that I had hit, I found this community of people where they couldn't give a fuck 
whether I was, um, you know, mixed race Chinese or fat or, or gay. And I, they just didn't care. They just kind of liked me for who I was. And so I was able to dial up my flamboyance and my campness and all of the stuff that made me smile. And, you know, and having clothes on that were brightly coloured and out there and no one else was wearing made me happy. And, and this community accepted me. And it was the most, you know, and I love those people still. I don't see hardly any of them anymore, ever actually. But these people were the most welcoming people in the entire world. And they were brilliant. And they were lesbian and trans and gay and bisexual. And however they wanted to identify, they were just brilliant people. And it felt amazing to be part of that community. And then I decided that I was, um, I decided I was going to move to London then. And I decided that I was going to audition for the Central School of Speech and Drama, which is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Because why the hell would I ever get into the Central School of Speech and Drama? You know, probably, arguably, this, you know, one of the top drama schools in the world. And I'm just this, you know, this kid from Leicester. But I auditioned and I got a place. And it was, it was for all the wrong reasons. Because I got there and I wasn't good enough. And I absolutely know that now. I wasn't a strong enough performer. And I didn't belong there. And I wasn't stable enough. And I wasn't confident enough to be in this place. And had an absolutely terrible time. And then within 12 months, lost half of my body weight and was diagnosed with severe anorexia wow so you're really flamboyant you're you've just sort of accepted who you are you've got this group around you that make you feel great about yourself yeah and then you go to London and I guess assuming that it's going to be this like wonderland like you know I because I'm not from London either and I feel like when I was growing up London just felt like the most exciting wonderful place in the world and I couldn't wait to get there I remember watching ITN News years ago the graphic of um, Westminster Bridge with Big Ben in the background I remember thinking one day I'm gonna live there and it, it was it was it was it was a land of dreams wasn't it yeah absolutely there was lots of things that happened during those three years that um that I've spoken about so it's not like I don't want to talk about it because we're gonna run out of time lots of things that happened one terrible incident that made me very, very scared where I was threatened very badly by a group of people in Leicester and got told that I'd be killed and stuff like that. Oh, my God. And I found this world that I was super happy and confident in and I was doing well at something and I was good enough to be there. And then all of a sudden this incident happened that made me, and I'm not going to say agoraphobic, but there's not another word for it, but I was really afraid of going out. There were certain parts of Leicester that I wouldn't allow myself to go in in case they were there. There were certain roads that I I wasn't allowed to drive down in case they were there. And so I've given myself all of these, I used to call them green and red areas. So green areas were okay at certain parts of the day but then they would turn into a red area and then I couldn't go near it in case they were there because I genuinely thought they were going to kill me. And and that was to do with being gay. And so London must have appealed even more then. Absolutely. You were like, right, I'm getting out of here. Is it? I mean, London was where, I mean, it's where gay people are. Absolutely. I'm here, you're here. <laughs> we're all here. That's where performers are. That's where, you know, flam, flam, I was searching again for Dandini. I was searching yes. for flamboyant people that I knew that I could be around. And when I arrived in London, of course, it wasn't like that. You know, London's a tough place to be in. I didn't feel in danger like I did for a long time in Leicester. But all of a sudden, I had a whole new set of cards to deal with. And those cards were that I just wasn't good enough to be there. I was surrounded by these very beautiful 
very brilliant, very creative, very talented performers that had spent, you know, that they'd, they'd read Keats and Shakespeare and Dickens and they knew this and knew that. And I didn't know any of that stuff. I was on a performing arts course in Leicester where we, you know, we did contemporary dance. And, you know, I think the last show that I did was was cabaret or something. Like, all of a sudden I'm surrounded by these very, very brilliant people and I just didn't fit in. I didn't, I wasn't strong enough to be there. So did you leave the course? Yes. Well, I kind of had to. I was so ill with the anorexia. So I decided, so, so, so go back and go backwards slightly. I failed very, very quickly. I'd, I'd never written an essay up until then because my 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 performing arts courses were very practical so I'd never actually I didn't know how to write an essay and don't forget I'd left school at 15 without any GCSEs so actually my writing and my reading wasn't very strong either and so I I then um was failing terribly but I kind of worked out in my head and I remember I had this real moment I stood on the stairs of the um uh, of the Embassy Theatre, the big front of the Central School of Speech and Drama, the very famous steps with all their names written on French and Saunders, all these people. And I stood on these steps and I thought, ah, I've got it. If I look like everybody else, if I behave like everybody else, then I'll be good. And so, of course, it's because it's you're fat. It's because you're fat. It's because you're overweight. And if you look like everybody else, then everyone's going to accept you and you'll be clever and brilliant and you'll be a great performer because I wanted desperately to be that. And um, and so I put myself on a diet and, and I, I started dieting. And within a matter of weeks, I'd, I'd kind of dieted and dieted. And then by the end of it, I was only eating three teaspoons of honey a day because I'd kind of mentally worked out that this that was enough carbohydrate that was enough sugar for me to do a full day which of course it wasn't but in no of course so you must have been so ill really ill really 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 ill and then I, I so I had to leave the course because I physically wasn't strong enough I mentally wasn't strong enough either and I had to go back to Leicester to I had to go back to the, the place that I was terrified of I had to go back there to be with my family that then repaired me and get myself better again and they did and they were you know incredible people and and all of that stuff happened happened and I'm sure like so many people that have like you know interviewed you before have said this but it's so interesting that you've been through that journey with your own body to then you know have a show like how to look good naked yeah because you really understand it from so many perspectives because you've sort of lived in two bodies yeah it kind of makes perfect sense to me you know when when I'm working when I'm working with somebody now and then, you know, I do this on a daily basis and I am standing in front of the mirror with them normally. And it's usually a woman and uh, and she's upset and she's crying and she's saying, you know, I can't take the kids swimming because I'm so afraid of what the other mums might think of my body in a swimsuit. Or they say, you know, I, I, I get petrified of going to the school gates with the kids because I don't want them to judge me. Or they turn around and say, you know, I, I, I can't have sex with my partner or I don't want my partner to see me naked. You know, all these things that I've heard mm. repeatedly over the last 20 years i've been a, a stylist in particular um, makeups a makeover stylist and so when when somebody says that it's almost as if okay so it's hard to imagine this but can you imagine just put your two put your put your fingers into a cage onto your chest and pull at the skin it feels uh-huh. like that it feels like that my entire chest plate opens when i hear somebody talk like that and that might sound like i'm exaggerating but i'm genuinely not it feels like every part of me is exposed when I hear somebody like that. And so I think 
because I've been there and I've looked in the mirror and I've contemplated suicide because I thought that was the only thing that was going to make me feel better. And I have starved myself, regardless of how much it damaged my relationship with my friends and my family. I still did that searching for happiness. So when somebody tells me they hate the way that they look with every single part of their body it rips open my chest and I can feel it and I think that you know I'm not I'm not the best stylist in the world I'm not the best presenter in the world I know all of this stuff I'm not the most intelligent person in the world but what I am good at is I'm really good at empathy because I know what that feels like but I think that's what makes you so good I think that's the thing like I think the reason like so you're like my auntie's favorite person she was so excited that I was chatting to you today I speak to my mum every morning and I said to mum, oh, I'm interviewing Gok this afternoon. She went, oh, my God, I can't wait to ring Jackie. <gasps> oh, my God, I can't wait to ring Jackie. Because I think that what your your talent is, is that your warmth comes through the screen, that there are women that have, you know, watched your shows and listened to what you've said to other women, and they've heard it themselves. And it's the truth and the honesty and the fact that, you know, that you've had a journey to get there and people can tell that you really care. It's not just a makeover show. It's a show about... Yeah, life about acceptance, about embracing who you are. It, it's so interesting because this um, towards the end of last year, so we haven't made um, Happen the Naked in um, years and years and years. No, no, it's been a while, hasn't it? A while, but then last year, um, I got asked to reboot the show again, which we did do. We made it, and I kind of undenied with whether I was the whether it was right for me because it's a very difficult show for me to make. I'm saying all this stuff like I'm some kind of yeah, I've got the tools and I know what I'm doing, but but of course you know. It, it's hugely damaging. When I, when I, years ago, when we made House Liquid Naked, I would have therapy whilst making the show because, of course, it opens up all the skeletons and all, all you know, all those cupboards in my head that I pack stuff away. Yeah, when something resonates that closely with you, you can't help but revisit. Exactly. And when, things that have happened. When you're making multiple episodes of one series and you're dealing with lots of different people, you know, and you're taking on all of their all of their stuff, you know, you have to absorb it like a sponge and so it, it doesn't go anywhere. And so I mm. went to therapy to, 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 to get rid of it so it didn't damage me too much. Um, but then this year, and then I decided I was going to make the show again. And it suddenly dawned on me making the show after all the, I mean, we made the first episode in 2006. Now, 2020, 14 years later, we're rebooting the show. And uh, that's so exciting. Really exciting. Very, very scary. But it suddenly made me realize that actually I've made so much television post How to Look Good Naked. Um, mm-hmm. that I am in a far more educated position about how television works and marketing and, you know, kind of the process and all that kind of stuff, that I kind of suddenly realised that actually How to Look Good Naked is never making a programme. I don't care where the cameras are. I don't care if my mic's, you know, working or not. I'm not thinking about the edit after the end of the day, which is what I do on normal sh- on other shows. Yeah. Because this show, I've only got one objective, and that is to get that person well, to get that person loving themselves, to get that person feeling good about themselves. And so, in, in, in House Look Good Naked, is that program. And so, we just by chance have a camera crew. It just happened mm. recorded that that does happen. But that show is real. The success rate is real. We, I, my intention is to make that person feel better, regardless of her shape or size or disability or whatever I'm working with. I don't give a shit. You know, my job is to make you love yourself. And I'm going to do that. You know, I set out that goal. And so it's a very interesting process to go through, especially from somebody that's been in such dark places with their body and their identity and feeling very unloved and very unliked, and not good enough and very unclever and all of that stuff. It's a very very odd position to be in because should I make that program probably not 
But do I make it and is it a success? Yes, it is, for that reason. It's a bit of an odd one. So at what point did you realise that you had this skill with, well, I guess with people? Because that, that must be part of the job. Because I've never had a stylist. Right. And part of it, I'm guessing, is making that person feel great. If they're going to an event or you're doing someone for an awards thing, they need to feel really great in what they're wearing. Yeah, it kind of happened before the fashion, actually. I've always had an affinity with women. I've always always really enjoyed the female psyche. And the majority of my social group is female. Mm -hmm. Um, And the people that I go to when I need help would be female as well. And so because of that, I naturally care. I care about how they feel about stuff. And I enjoy the, the conversation and the language that comes with being a woman. That's just been me the whole of my life. And, 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 and that's nothing to do with being gay, by the way. That's to do with me being me as a person. Mm-hmm. And so I've always enjoyed that. But, I, but years and years ago, so, so leaving Central, getting better from anorexia, moving back to London, I'm now working in a gay restaurant in London, Balance. Oh, I know Balance. I love Balance. And so I'm there. And at the time, my flatmate at the time was a singer and I'd gone to Central with her and she'd just got a single deal. And my flatmate is getting her hair and makeup done to go to work um, on her music video that day. And the whole time I'm getting ready, I'm kind of watching her hair and makeup being done, thinking I could do that. I could do that. And all day long, I thought about it, thought about, you know, the, the makeup and everything else. And I got home that night and I said to my flatmate, you know, what was the director like? How many times did you have to sing the song? What did you have to wear? What did you have to do? And also, how much did your makeup artist get paid? And she told me 50 quid. And I thought, fucking hell, one day I'm going to earn 50 quid a day. I'm going to do that. And so basically, I blag my way. This is a really long story, so I'm going to cut it short. I blag my way into a hair and makeup agency. And so I walk bowl into this agency and I basically tell them that I am a hair and makeup artist. I've been working out in New York. I don't have a portfolio because it's with a director in LA for a film. And um, I would love to join the agency. Oh, I love the black. Yeah, the black. And so I did all this stuff. So obviously I did learn something at drama school. And um, and anyway, a couple of days later, they called me and I flipped my phone. It was Sony Ericsson back in the day. Oh, very cool back then. Thank you very much. And, uh, and they, they've got this job for me. And it's to do um, all of the... British polo players, why? For a feature in a magazine. And I'm like, okay, fine. And so I didn't have any kits, had no makeup brushes, had no makeup. I couldn't do it. So I basically had to black all of this makeup and I had two days to learn how to do makeup. And I was so shit. I was so bad at it. And I rock up to this job and I'm doing the women's makeup, um, never having done makeup in my life before. And it was terrible. I mean, they had eyebrows where their hair was <laughs> Why is everyone so surprised, Jock? Literally, and like orange jawline. I mean, the full works. But it didn't matter because I made all these women feel really comfortable in my chair and I chatted and I made them laugh and, you know, kind of made them feel really warm. And I probably that's the, that's the first time I realised, oh, actually, you can do something like this. You've got a skill here. It isn't necessarily the skill that I then obviously taught myself. I was, you know, became quite a successful makeup artist in, in the day. Um, that stuff you can teach yourself. It's, it's craft. It's skill. But what um, nobody can teach you is how to make somebody feel good about themselves when they're in a vulnerable position. And when you're about to have your picture taken or you're about to go and sing a song on stage or you're about to shoot your music video, you want to have a team around you that make you feel good about yourselves. And, and so I then went on to have quite a successful career as a makeup artist 
and then fashion stylist before TV happened. So at that point, were you were you into clothes? Because you're so like when I've seen you out and about, you're so stylish. I'm really not. Well, Susie, honestly, I'm the worst. You know, they they always say hairdressers have the worst hair and stylists have the worst clothes. <laughs> I kind of agree with that because you know my job is to make everybody else feel beautiful. I've always been fascinated by clothes, but it's never been about trend for me. I've really enjoyed and from a very early age. I remember my sister coming home from school and my sister's kind of my idol and she still is now. I, I absolutely adore my sister. Um, and I remember her coming home from school in the 80s and she would then go up to her room and get changed. And, and within moments, she would have transformed from a schoolgirl in her uniform all of a sudden into this goth with this <laughs> quiff and oversized earrings and oversized men's jacket, tube skirt, brogues, you know. And it was just, I was remember being fascinated by how the, the caterpillar effect of clothing can turn you into transform a, you. Transform you. And so from a very early age, I knew the power of clothing. I hadn't logged it until much later on in my life. And so I've always been obsessed with the, what clothing does to the psyche, you know, how we project ourselves onto other people, the conversations that we have without words, just by the clothes that we use, you know, the reason why you use your shirts for work, the reason why you use a suit, the reason why you describe yourself as androgynous, the reason why you have your hair cut the way you do, you know, all of those things I'm really interested in, that the psychology of, of fashion. So it was never about what is the best cut this season or what is the best shoot. It was about what do you we do? What are the messages we give out to other people by the clothes that we wear? and how powerful are they because if you can deter an argument or if you could convey the most incredible political message by the clothes that you're wearing and you're doing all of that without language how incredible would that be to be able to harness that and use it for good so what are your clothes saying not necessarily today but when you go out what is it that you're trying to say with your clothes so my my clothing is pretty much i need people to know i know what i'm talking about but right. also I... And your glasses as well. Yeah, my glasses are a statement. I, I like things. Do you know, whenever I'm having a shit clothing day, I've got a couple of images inside my head that I always go back to. One is of Diane Keaton wearing a full suit. Oh, I know. Exactly. Yep. Love it. Love it. Love it. I think of Tilda Swinton. Always. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so, I've got all, so I've got these kind of references inside my head. But then I've created a character who is a little bit like a Southeast Asian architect. He's kind of wearing disconnected, slightly oversized, um, slightly uniform, utilitarian clothing. And so my, my, my clothing's around that slightly. I'm almost like a funeral director for the wardrobe. <laughs> I'm sorry, this top is not going to make it. I'm sorry. It's been on life support for a while. The last time you took it out, it did not look well. We've, we've made the decision. <laughs> So yeah, kind of that's how I describe my style really. But I kind of, you know, oddly, I used to be very, very concerned about what I look like. And when I first, you know, went onto television, I, I, you know, the papers would talk about you and you'd be photographed and the paps would be following you and, and stuff like that. I was really concerned, but I, did, I wanted just people to like me. It's got it's that age old thing, you know, still searching yeah. for Bandini. But as I've got older, you know, I'm 46 this year. I, I've never been happier. I've never been more confident with who I am as a person. I really trust what comes out of my mouth now. I really trust my politics and my ethics and I stand for what I believe in. And if I don't, I won't say anything. So all this stuff that I've learned. So actually my clothes now, but bizarrely become less important to me because my mind is doing that job now. I don't need the uniform as much. And what do you think's got you there to, to knowing yourself that bit better? Is it because the sort of work success? Because I mean, you've had like a really impressive career. Thank you. Like there's, you've been, you've done, 
loads. Everyone knows who you are. Everyone that, like, I know people that know you. Everyone likes you. Like, our industries sort of occasionally cross over, and everyone's always got a kind word to say about you. Like, what do you think has got you to that stage where you do feel like you don't need this sort of armour of your uniform anymore? Do you know what? I've worked out quite a, quite a while ago now that actually, I, for a long time, I, my, my, I was always searching for happiness because I wanted people to like me. I wanted people to accept me. I wanted to be validated. And that comes from the bullies and it comes from Dandy mm-hmm. and it comes from, you know, that awful incident in Leicester and even leaving drama school. All of that stuff was about validation. And I realised, you know, quite a while ago now actually I just needed to accept myself and if I accept who I am and this is going to sound like the, the, this is going to sound like the biggest bag of cheese crisps you've ever eaten in your entire life I'm ready I'm ready I'm ready the bag's open feed them to me <laughs> I do genuinely believe that if I'm a good person and I am kind to other people that's enough for me and so if I'm doing a good job, if I'm looking after my friends, if I'm looking after my family, and I'm not saying that like, I love everyone because I don't, because some people I really fucking hate. <laughs> but, you know, for the people that in my life, that I, and I want to be a good person, I want to be kind, and I want to be less judgmental and all that other stuff. If, I, if I'm a good person, I'm going to feel good about myself. And it is genuinely the truth. You know, yesterday I had a really, really tough morning. I, I woke up and I wasn't even hungover. Uh, I woke up and I just was like, what, are we still in this? Are we still doing mm. I want to see my family. I want to see my friends. And I was in this, the shittiest mood you could ever imagine. It doesn't happen that often anymore. And I kind of, and I felt it creeping up. And it was almost like, you know, when you froth a coffee and you put in yeah. too much and you kind of know that it's going to go over the top and you still, you still keep on pouring. It was like I was pouring all of this frothy milk into this coffee and I couldn't stop it from over pouring. And so what I did is I wrote a really simple statement and put it onto my Instagram account. And it was just, it was just really honest. It was like I'd had a really shit morning. And so I've just done some breathing. I've done some smiling. I've, I've just remembered I've got to be grateful for my friends and family. And it's because I thought to myself, actually, there's going to be millions of people that feel that shit in that morning but maybe they haven't got the tool or the device to get themselves out of it so if I share my tool it might help and it just blew up thousands and thousands of messages and and stuff of people saying thanks very much that really helped me this morning I'm having a really tough time and so I think it's about that that's made me a happier person mm. use my personality not my status not my job not not what I do not my you know I hate words but fame or popularity none of that stuff means anything to me I don't care about it I care about being a good person and making sure that when people do talk about me that they do say they've only got nice things to say because I'm a nice person and if someone does say something about me that isn't very nice they're probably a dickhead well I I can tell you I've only ever heard such (laughs) things about you you've not spoken to my family (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) oh no we've got your dad on afterwards he's 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 coming on after (laughs) we've got Papa Wan on Papa Wan I love him so the final question that I ask everyone when they come on the show uh, is if you could pick up like a telephone, one of maybe one of those '80s ones that have still got the curly cord, and um, ring Little Gok, and let's say when you'd had that three days of playing Dandini, yeah, and but then you had to go back to life. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give him about what's to come? This is a really difficult answer because I think it's slightly dangerous I'm going to be very honest Susie because I think if, okay. if you were to go back and tell your former self then you wouldn't be the person that you are but I'm going to play the game anyway that's true that is true okay well then if you had to give him a bit of encouragement then let's not say advice today let's say encouragement so I would I'd say I'd say to to little Gok um 
do you know what? Stop worrying about everything because everything is going to be all right. You're an all right person. You know, you're not the best at everything and you don't have to be already. And instead of trying to prove to the world how good you are at stuff that you don't understand, why don't you just let the world know that you're there? And that's enough right now. You don't need to do any more than that because you've got a long time ahead of you to do all the other stuff. That's perfect. Gok, thank you so much. for. I know that you're so, so busy at the moment and I really appreciated that conversation. Thanks for having me on. There we are. What a fantastic conversation. I absolutely love Gok and I'm, of course, absolutely delighted that he thinks that I'm stylish. What a joy. What a joy to chat to him. What a joy to make this series this year. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in 2021. Until then, look after yourself. Bye.